0: Hey y'all, it's your favorite host and I wanted to just pop in here to say uh, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier which gives you access to the Discord and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier an eight dollar tier uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad free um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro rpgs that i create in the future yeah so again uh thank you so much for listening to the show um if you'd like to give additional support that's one way to do it another great way to do it is just you know go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast subscribe Uh, follow, leave a review if you can. Um, Those things really help gain visibility for the show, and it is always greatly appreciated. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, and back to the episode. Welcome to the Secret Nerd Podcast, where we think everyone should play tabletop RPGs and give you some reasons why. today's episode, I have a very cool guest. Um, This is the gentleman who is the CEO of Magpie Games, creators of such games as Root, Masks, and of course, um, the latest release that just had an amazing Kickstarter, uh, the Avatar Last Airbender. If you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm Mark Diaz-Truman. I'm the CEO of Magpie Games, like you said, and um, we have kind of a studio model, so I've been the editor and publisher for... Uh, masks, like you said, which is one of our yeah. biggest games. But I'm the creator of Cartel, which is my Mexican narco fiction game, yeah. um, and of course, one of the co-creators and uh, lead designer for Urban Shadows Second Edition, yes. which is one of the other big products we're working on. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously Avatar Legends, the RPG, has been my my a big thing for us this year. Yeah. Um, but what's really cool about my job is I get to split my time between doing some cool publishing work and then getting to do design and writing for things like Avatar, but also some projects that are ours. Are our, our individual IPs?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, man, and we'll and we'll definitely get into all of that stuff. But where I always like to start is like, how did you even get into, uh, you know, nerd stuff in general, whether it was gaming or whatever else? Yeah. Well, my father's a mechanical engineer, so it's kind of I was that's
1: hereditary. I guess yeah. For me. I think I think uh, Quinn Murphy said it was hereditary, and I was like, that's the right word for me too. Mm-hmm. I remember watching old episodes of Star Trek when I was a kid, and yeah. uh, and ironically, my dad wasn't a gamer. Like it wasn't gaming when he grew up. He grew up in Tuba City, Arizona, which is on the Navajo Reservation. So there wasn't a lot of like D and D necessarily. when he was growing up, Uh, and he's a little older than that anyway. um, So they didn't really do anything like that. Um, But when uh, I was a kid, there was just like a lot of science and math and nerd stuff. And at that time in the eighties, like those things had a really heavy alliance, right? Yeah. you were a nerd because you did nerd stuff and you didn't do cool stuff. And so if you, I, I remember getting like kind of picked on for having comic books, which yeah. now just seems ludicrous, right? That you would be <laughs> humiliated for liking Spider-Man, yeah. a brand so big everyone loves it, right? Yep, um, absolutely. But that was totally, totally my life in the 80s and 90s here in New Mexico, especially, which I joke is always like 10 years behind.
0: Yeah, else, right, right um, yeah.
1: <laughs> but when I was uh, in Boy Scouts, actually, I think I had a friend who got a copy of, uh probably advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition, I guess was mm-hmm. probably probably where it was. And okay. so I became the game master for that and we didn't really know what we were doing at all and, and just kinda hacked our way through it. Yeah. Um, and and but it actually was later I think that I actually got set on the path that that led to me doing this stuff, which is in the late nineties, uh after, you know, probably in high school I'd stopped playing nerd games or whatever. Yeah. But I was also a theater kid. Yeah. Okay. And so the other big the other big like thrust of gaming right is like (laughs) is like it's nerd science nerds and theater kids are like two of the big trunks um so i fell in as a sophomore with these like super cool seniors who were playing mage the awakening okay and this idea that games could be like for adults like that that, like that is a game about like philosophy and shit like that was and and they were older than me they were so cool right and so like i got to hang out with them for their senior year and play mage and play you know vampire and stuff and uh and that really I think set me on this course of like games being more than just like a thing you do with your friends, but maybe
0: art. Yeah, maybe art. Yeah. For sure. And so did you grow up in New Mexico your whole life? Yeah, yeah. Born
1: and raised. Like my parents uh moved here when my dad got a, a position at UNM to teach mechanical engineering. So okay. um I was born here in New Mexico. Uh I grew up here. Yeah, I went to Zia Elementary, Jefferson Middle <laughs> School, Albuquerque High. I went to yeah. Albuquerque High School, man. Yeah, uh, and I didn't leave the state really. I mean, we went on trips and stuff, like yeah. to see other places, but I didn't really leave the state in any real way until I went to undergrad at Arizona State. Okay. And moving to Arizona was a trip, man. Like I mean, you, you're yeah. from here, you know. Yeah. Like everybody's a little bit Hispanic in New Mexico, right? And <laughs> yeah. You speak a little Spanish. You you eat green chili. Like yeah. it's not a big deal. I moved to Arizona, and I remember calling. Uh, Pizza Hut or something, and being like, I'd like a pizza with green chili. And they're like, Green bell peppers? Yeah. No, (laughs) green chili. What what do we mean? I can't have green chili. What the, right? Yeah. Um, So it was really eye opening experience because I had spent so much of my life, like just here in New Mexico. And as you know, like you don't just take a day trip in Arizona or a day trip into Texas. Like it's eight hours of driving
0: to get somewhere. Yeah. We're like the fifth largest state. So it's such a long trek anywhere you go. Exactly. Yeah. So, So I grew up here in, uh really had a cool experience I think
1: as a as a person of color because this is not a white dominated state the way like say Arizona is, right? Like right. Arizona is like white where like I was I had to I for the first time in my life when I moved to Arizona, I really understood like White people anger, like anger about people crossing a border, mm-hmm. anger about like people taking your resources. Like, there's conflicts in New Mexico, yeah. but they're more like conflicts about the division of things, right? Than mm-hmm. whether one side has the right to exist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the difference, right? When yeah. I moved there, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I mean for sure. You know, you see a lot of that. Um, just even like now, I mean, we're dealing with like real ID and stuff like that over the past, you know, five or. Or so years, um, but I think a lot of that came from that Arizona because they were just like yeah. popping people left and right for for everything, and and um, you know, and just that intergovernmental blame of who's doing what and who's contributing the most to this and all of this stuff, and um, you know, and and meanwhile we have these rich cultures, you know, that come from Mexico that you know add to everything that you know these states are, especially in the Southwest. Like Arizona is not the state it is without mexicans exactly. and so like the idea yeah, yeah. that um you know that like you said just having you know that kind of uh white people problems of of dealing with that stuff is so wild um but it really especially, is like, yeah go ahead sorry well
1: it's especially wild for me because here in new mexico right we have uh indigenous people in mm-hmm. the pueblos and the four corners region who like yeah. you're not it's not just mexicans right, right. It's yeah absolutely yeah these these other groups as well there's 19 individual pueblos who there's like five language groups or four language groups across them Mm -hmm. right within this this like you said enormous state but like (laughs) within this relative one political area yeah and like like you said you know for me growing up like i always understood as the child of a white dad and mexican-american mother Mm -hmm. like i lived at the border of something but my state was at the border of something and i lived on a border and my whole existence growing up was always to be a little off, to be a little out, right, yeah, and mm-hmm. and so like, you know, but moving to Arizona, I'd never seen those lines drawn so clearly, right, yeah. so um, I was really happy to move back to New Mexico, I wasn't happy at first, because I was like 22 and probably yeah. about it, right, but when I finally got settled back in, I was like, I can have a green chili, bacon cheese burrito anytime yeah. I want, I could, I could see my parents, like, it's, I'm back here in this wonderful state, um, and then the only other time I've really lived anywhere else was when I went to graduate school. Uh, to get a master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, oh, awesome. um, and so i lived I lived in uh, Boston in Harvard Square, yeah, yeah. it was a lot yeah <laughs> so it was very stressful uh, for about two and a half three years, and then again, when I moved back home, it was like, why did I like what was I thinking like what you know <laughs> these like eight month winters in Boston. You no, know, I will take my three hundred fifty days of sunshine here in New yeah. Mexico right so, yeah, so all my time away has always made me appreciate New Mexico so much more for what it is and what it offers.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's interesting. So, you know, coming from kind of around the time of the beginnings of D and D and things like that, um, and other TTRPGs and, you know, having that Hispanic background, like, what was that like for you getting into it and, and, you know, seeing the way that races were portrayed in D and D and stuff like that? Like, did you notice that stuff or were you kind of oblivious to it? I mean, I think this is something I've, I've
1: heard from a lot of people of color who are my age, right? So like not, not people who were, who were doing it earlier or later, but people who maybe like really started in the late eighties or early nineties before three, five, right. Before three, right. Was that like, we didn't really notice because it was just given. It was like, yeah, this is some white people bullshit, but I didn't have a conception of white people bullshit. So like, what did it, was I even saying, Yeah, but I will say my favorite character in Dragonlance was, Tannis, the half elf. Okay. What a mystery. Yeah. Why <laughs> would I find Tannis to be to be an interesting character, yeah, yeah. right? Like what yeah. how could that pot where did that come from, right? Yeah. So later, right, I kind of have have been struck by how often I look back at something from that time and see myself trying to work out something about myself in yeah. that space, right? Like, like, what does it mean to live between communities? What does it mean to be part of both groups but neither welcomes you, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Those are some themes
1: that came up again and again in my life, so they came up again and again in my characters.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a good point because a lot of people have touched on, you know, drow and what that means, you know, if you're a person of color and right. orcs and everything yeah. else, but you make a good point about half-elves that I had the same conclusion because I'm also oh, cool. uh, multiracial. So for me, it was like, you know, to read that on paper of like, oh yeah, like they they don't belong anywhere, right? Um right. And it's and it's such a um but then this yeah, so it's it's like, okay, this is cool to be able to explore this in game, but also like why does it even need to be something that they're not accepted? Like you wrote the book, you could just yeah. make it like everybody is yeah. fine with this. You know what I mean? So it's interesting right. how those play out because there's two sides of it of that. However you would like to approach the game, you should be able to take it. But but I think so many people look at the way a book's written and go, okay, well, this is canonical. So this is how I have to accept the information. Sure. Sure.
1: There's an interesting thing there for me where um, first I think that one of the great things about half elves as portrayed, like in Dragonlance, for example, is that Tannis's leadership is directly tied to the fact that he has more perspectives. And I've seen that a lot with people of color I've worked with Mm -hmm. is that like, we have to know both the white world and our world because you can't afford to not know the white world. You yeah. have to know the rules, right. right? So you you have to have this kind of bigger perspective from anyone one, mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about marginalized people is that oftentimes we contain within ourselves multiple perspectives yeah. that allow us to see beyond what might immediately be in front of us, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of the exclusion and the leadership are kind of written into each other. Mm-hmm. And that's why for a lot of my career, like jumping ahead, right, like I, I have focused on trying to provide both of those things across the spectrum. So just as an example, right? I mean cartel is not it's not a game that you get to play kind of however you want. Yeah. Like you're thrust in the middle of the Mexican drug war, like breaking bad and narcos. Yeah. Your character has already made bad decisions yeah. Yeah. to end up here before we even start. Right. And the world is unfriendly and uncaring and probably racist and sexist. Mm-hmm. But then I also worked on a book for Seventh C called The New World that was basically Mesoamerican Wakanda. Okay. In which we reimagined all these societies—the Aztec, the Maya, the Incans—as mm-hmm. you know, like heroic or to some degree heroic societies yeah. on par with the European nations of 7 Sea. Gotcha. And in those, they're they're not idyllic; they have problems, but they're they're beautiful, right? Yeah, and they're yeah. supposed to be beautiful mm-hmm. the way Wakanda is beautiful. Yeah. And so I often joke that what I want from people of color is The Wire and Wakanda. Yeah. Both. Like if we just tell one side of that story. Just a happy, upbeat. You can be anything. Yeah. Are we denying our own experiences? Right, but if we right. just tell the sad shit, like how are we supposed <laughs> to imagine a better future? Yeah. So it's like being caught with both of those, and then maybe with something like D and D, you should you should just be intentional yeah. about what you decide you're playing. Yeah. Right? And not have it be just one thing.
0: Right. And I think you know, especially now with, you know, people talking more about like safety tools and things like that. Like sure. it's becoming more of a common conversation to be able to say like, "Hey, this is the kind of game I want to play. Like this is how I would like yes. my character to be perceived in the world, and I don't want to deal with this." You know what I mean? And other people can yeah. say like, you know, in this other campaign, like, "I'm okay with this situation, and I I would like to be able to work around it and deal with that stuff, right?" Um, you know, yeah. I think The Witcher is one of those games where it's like if you're playing the Witcher oh, yeah. RPG like and you are playing a non-human. You're you're gonna deal with some really racist stuff, right? Um, right? How you navigate that with your with your DM is up to you know you guys at the table, and of course have that conversation. Yeah, um, so important. But you know that. But if that's not for you, then it's okay. Like, don't play that game. You know, or I think it's it's also not a binary, like you're saying, right?
1: Like like we uh, I, I played a uh, steal away Jordan. Uh, with Julia Ellingbo, who's the the creator of Silhouette Jordan, okay. which is an indie game uh, about uh, playing slaves in the Antebellum mm. South. Like you're, you're literally slaves. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the one of the procedures of the game is that you make your character, and the GM names you. Oh wow! He looks at you and says, "Ah, you look like a gem. Yeah. Okay, you look like an old Bob, right? It's yeah. like the most demeaning, humiliating yeah, thing. It's like sure. I didn't even get to name my character, but it's so true to it. It puts you in the right mindset, right? And so I was really nervous about playing this game with Julia, right? Cause I'm like, wow, this is like, she's the creator. Mm-hmm. I'm not black. Yeah. This is definitely like outside my experience. When I sat down, she was just like, before we start, no one today will use the N word. Yeah. I'm not going to use the N word. We're not going to say it. Yeah. That's not a thing. Yeah. Here are the things we are going to walk through and portray. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, of course. Yeah. Like I don't, we're not signing on for every last worst <laughs> thing that yeah, ever yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. We're saying our story is going to be an FX story. It's not going to be an HBO Max like, mm-hmm. you know, sex and porn and <laughs> yeah. drugs and guns and yeah. death, right? It's going to be like an FX story like Breaking Bad where it's like there's some language and mm-hmm. and yes, there's some violence, but it's maybe off-screen. Yeah. And that's our we decide our comfort level with yeah. the story. And there's nothing about about the the safety tools like you're talking about help to facilitate that from racism or no racism yeah. to like racism but no slurs. Yeah let's just talk about structures and power and then I can X card it if it gets to be too much. For me. Yeah. And that's a better environment for everybody.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that's, it, it really is so important. And I mean, especially as the world kind of is in uh, turmoil, like there's these parts, like they're just like so beautiful of like how people are coming together and, and, you know, you see a lot of progression and then there's other parts that are like, you know, feel like that progression has taken things too far and let's go back to the way things were of the, you know, sure. great days. And it's like, no, this is, this is you know, um, too far, but there's, there's no, there's hardly any middle ground. Right. And really, it's hard to have middle ground with somebody when it's like, I want the same rights for everyone and the same acceptance for everyone. And you're a Nazi, like there's really, where's that middle ground at? Right. It's kind of just like, I just I do not accept those things. And, and they choose not to accept the other things. So it's, it's tough. In the world of that but i think if you're doing what you should do and curating who you're around who you're playing games with and really like taking the time to understand who people are um you can have really good experiences right um yeah and and i mean a lot of the games that we publish are games for you know we
1: we jokingly say like for adults right because at some level it's like look if you're sitting down to play Cartel, Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're 17, I'm more power to you, man. If you're willing to do the work, (laughs) right. But like, this is not a game that's a popcorn and beer game of like killing things with your friends. This is a game where like, there's going to be an intense experience. Mm -hmm. We have got to have safety tools for that experience, and we have to have the right people at the table. Yeah. And so, for me as a designer, I don't worry too much about like. Like, you know, if a Nazi wants to play my game, I mean, knock yourself out, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> like, like, good luck, yeah. buddy. I don't know, like, don't you'll know have to treat Mexicans like it. people. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know what you're going to get out of it, right? I don't I don't really go for much virtue signaling around, you know, fascists can't play my game. Right. Yeah. It's like, I don't care what fascists do. I care what people, like you're saying, these people in the middle, these people you know, who are close to us, having an experience that deepens and challenges their progressivism mm-hmm. away from easy hashtag let me retweet a Black Lives Matter thing yeah. to being like the, my experience with Steelway Jordan, where I was like, "Wow, there is some parts of being a slave yeah. that I hadn't really thought about." Yeah, right. And I, like, I mean, I am a fairly well-read guy. It's not like I've never thought about slavery, right. right? But games give us an opportunity to engage things in a different way, right? Right, and and there is a party who wants to be like, "Let's make every Nazi play my game and then <laughs> ask them how they feel," right? Because the whole idea is to teach empathy yeah. and reach out to people. And like you said, it's really hard to convince somebody. Who is, I don't know, an anti-vaxxer mm. or a climate change denier or a Sandy Hook denier. Yeah. It's really hard to convince them intellectually. But maybe we can move them emotionally and get them to see things differently. Yeah. And maybe games is a part of that. Maybe one of the reasons I think the way I think is I spent my whole freaking life pretending to be other people. Yeah. right? Yeah. And maybe that can be a powerful tool for helping to get people to think
0: differently. Well, and I think too, I mean, there's so many people that have said it, but like, you know, TTRPGs just make us better people, like you said, just for that reason, right? Because you are jumping into a different space you're having to put on, you know, obviously you can do like a self-insert character, right? Many people do, sure. but you also have the opportunity to say like, okay, I'm going to try this thing and, and, and kind of wear that mask and, and see what it feels like to go through that experience and, you know, react to a situation in a different way than you would ever react and understand like, okay, Yeah. yeah, you know, maybe these aren't it's not always going to be these consequences, but this is how those actions led to a specific consequence or a specific right. reward. Um, and really, you know, like you said, just kind of build on that empathy. So it's so cool to be able to do that. And, and really, you know, I've talked about it before, but like that same, that same part of our brain that is using experiences to tell these stories and like imagine stuff is also the same part that creates the memories. And so like, we're really living it, Um, you know, whether we're physically taking damage or not, like we're not, you know, tracking our own personal hit hit point counter, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, you're really experiencing it. And so to watch people play games on streams and like, Yeah, they're really crying at the table because their friend died. Yeah, you know, or or whatever, or you know, they did this thing for them. Or um, so it's such a cool experience. Like, and that's you know, games are unique in that way to give us that.
1: Well, I think they're they're not unique because I think I can think of another place that we do it. And when I was at the Kennedy School, I was really surprised by this. But um, one of the parts of doing public policy is you often talk about ethics. Mm -hmm. You're trying trying to figure out. What is the right thing to do as a leader? What's the right thing to do as an elected official? Um, and having spent so much time around role players, I was really surprised when I went to the Kennedy School that most of my fellow students were not interested in ethics and were not interested in exploring ethics. Hmm. And it was because there was a muscle they had not used, yeah. which is in some ways thinking about hypotheticals yeah. and thinking about philosophy in cases. Mm-hmm. And so the only other, and I say that to say there's another place that we do this, which is a re- another awesome place, which is when I teach philosophy. Yeah. I I put cases before people, and I say, okay, what if there is a zombie apocalypse, yeah. and you are holed up in this prison, and five people come out of the woods, and they say they want to live with you, and you have tons of room. Yeah. Ought you open your doors and welcome them, or is it permissible for you to tell them to fuck off? Yeah. Right? And my students don't realize that what I just asked them to do was, you want to play some zombie world with yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. Like, you want to play Zomero? Because we're going to play right now, right? And so it's like, you know, what we've done with tabletop RPGs is given people an opportunity to engage, whether they know it or not, whether it's organized or not, basically their moral imagination. What matters most about this situation? Who is right? Who is wrong? What do you care about, right? And so watching those students be like, well, I should let them in, I guess. And you're like, so why do we not let people in? when they're refugees, they're like, (laughs) like, like like all of a sudden they're like, oh man, this is, well, it's different. I'm like, well, how is it different? different. So, so those aspects of like thinking through it's like, that makes me love while playing games even more because when you play cartel, the most important thing you have to do is you have to say, okay, my character is an enforcer for the Sinaloa drug cartel. I am playing that character, which means that character is a person. Mm -hmm. So I have to humanize them from minute one yeah. because I'm them. And in that moment, I start thinking the way they, I have to, well, how did I end up here? What did I do that put me in this position? And you have to start thinking about it. And then you start thinking, well, is that a common experience? Are those people human in ways maybe I didn't give them credit for being human before? Yeah, Right? And and so like, you know, do we do a lot of that d and I mean, I don't know, like <laughs> in the middle of killing a, a tavern basement full of rats, like how much empathy do you really build? Yeah. But the idea is that over the course of whatever role playing you're doing, you're going to confront situations and decisions that matter, right? And that have real
0: impacts. Yeah. I think I was reading something that Quinn wrote where he talked about, uh, it was like a Twitter thread and he was talking about his default in game is non-lethal damage. So unless you specify otherwise, it's all non-lethal damage. Um, which I think is a, is actually a really good idea because it is like it's so easy just to jump in and be like we slaughter everyone right and it's just like sure. you know okay well maybe we don't need um, <laughs> you know and and yeah. I'm just as guilty of it too playing those games because you're you know that's in the game and you know you play uh, video games right and then yeah there's no no yeah. you're just killing everything so um, so I think yeah. it's it's um, but it's good you know to be able to to do those things and to have uh, those discussion that, discussions around ethics you know one thing i didn't think about when like i don't know if you're familiar with the arrow tv show that came out on the cw with uh, for green arrow um, of dc comics mm-hmm. and so when that show started i mean he was just murdering everybody like there was like 10 guards on the building all dead right and you're just like okay yeah he's getting to the bad guy and <laughs> and i was in a... you're
1: like are those contractors yeah like, they're just
0: dudes i like, just got hired to do a job um and i yeah. was in a fiction writing class and this guy wrote a short story about um just a guard right who was just guarding this you know dark lair and he was like talking to this guy he's like oh yeah my kids like this will be good i'll get like fifty thousand dollar bonus and i'll make up for my year so my kid can go to college and then in comes a superhero right and lands and destroys this whole island and like he's just obliterating people and they're just all you know um just these guards these, these peons and it's like oh yeah that really kind of puts into perspective of like you know some people are just there just to get a paycheck you know they're not necessarily you know
1: i mean we we talk about this a lot in, in magpie because we have such a wide variety of mm-hmm. games right I and mean, we have a game about baby dragons where friendship is yeah. like called the pillion so like it's so, like just that's the spectrum like cartel yeah. right breaking bad and narcos yeah. too my little yeah. dog. Like, that is the that is the spectrum of products yeah. we offer right so so we talk a lot of like there's no like, the idea of non-lethal damaging cartel is hilarious. right yeah absolutely like, yeah. like that's not the that's not the genre yeah. at all right but if i'm playing epilion with the baby dragons like the baby dragons aren't like you know ah, ha ha friendship is magic now let me claw you open yeah. and eat your insides right like like so we're always thinking about like what matches the mechanics in the system And the implications of the system, like you're saying, the stuff that's not immediately obvious, but that comes out as you play and as you think about your decisions, Mm -hmm. right? How do we match that to the game? So, for example, with Avatar, right? When I play Avatar, everything is non-level damage Mm -hmm. because people throw fireballs and mountains at each other all the time. And for the most part, everybody's fine. Like, the deaths that occur on the show are like big, huge moments in which a villain does a kill you're yeah. kill someone real good mm-hmm. and that's how we know they're a villain yeah. right so it can't be you know that but that said the Kiyoshi novels if you've read them which you know document Avatar Kyoshi's adventures are totally different yeah. than the shows right and so you have to as a group have to kind of make that decision but we're going to kind of lean on more of the shows yeah. right to talk about you know yeah you get blown out a window and into the streets and you get knocked unconscious or you're defeated or whatever yeah. what's the phrase that use Avatar take it out <laughs> yeah you're always taken out, right? Um but like we, we think about that all the time because like you said, you know, it's very easy to default to, yeah, you, you won this conflict because you did the mechanics that say you mm-hmm. won. And so therefore everyone else is dead. Yeah. And you're like, is that actually what, what we yeah. want? Or is that should that be a choice where you say, Yeah, I'm gonna kill these guards because I want to be I want to get in here without anybody alerting anyone and that's more important than their lives.
0: Yeah. And then you're like now we know something about your character <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's,
1: yeah. that's a decision you yeah. made
0: yeah i mean it, and it really is you know such a fascinating thing to explore um and to be able to do those and um one game that i've talked about a ton is delta green and it's that same thing like that game is just horrifically violent like that's that's the game you're playing when you sign up to play delta green is there's going to be a lot of horror there's gonna be a lot of violence, um, a ton of role playing, like great storytelling. But like, you know, when it comes down to if you get into a fight, like, don't expect to walk away. Like, I mean, just the you know, I always thinking about like the physics, because um, there are um, like podcasts and stuff out there that like we put real people from our world into D and D land, and I'm like, can you imagine how like mind bending that would be? Uh, so, like, <laughs> get your stomach ripped open, take an eight hour sleep, and you're you're perfectly fine. <laughs> right yeah like, like
1: the, the, the the diegetic understanding yeah. of those actions within the fiction uh you know the way we see the, the mechanics represented is not is not just it does not map onto our no world enough, <laughs> right that is not what the game is supposed to do and it's funny because i mentioned Fortnite for non lethal damage but actually fortnite has got a really weird construction because although it's never directly addressed in the fiction when you're playing Fortnite, you're actually, like, when you, when you eliminate somebody in Fortnite, first of all, you don't kill them, you eliminate them. They, yeah. uh, there's like a little animation of them being like deconstructed as a digital object. Yeah. Meaning that while you're shooting at them and you kill them, you don't actually kill them because they are playing a game inside the yeah. game. So like, even with that, there's this move to be made to distance the eight-year-olds right. that I lose to, uh, <laughs> like from, from the yeah. violence of the game, right? Because there is this sense that it's not Yeah. Game. Where I Call of Duty, you're killing yeah. other humans because that's it's a military, right, yeah, thing, yeah. right? And just sort of thinking through, and I, I think for me as a designer, um, the thing that I wish more of our industry was thoughtful about is really thinking through the secondary implications of your work. Yeah. Meaning, if you say X about the world, what is what is Y? Like what is implied by that, and therefore becomes yeah. Y, and then what does that imply that becomes? Yeah, evil, right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in pillion. You have all these different kinds of moon magic you mm-hmm. can do, um, and, and moon magic for baby dragons is how you usually solve problems. So you get yes, to the end of an adventure, a little moon magic will wrap it up with a bow and get mm-hmm. it done because it's supposed to be episodic. Yeah. But as you get older, as you level up, you lose access to your moons, oh, okay, but you get stronger in your magic. Yeah. And so the implication of that system is older dragons can do fewer things but do them yeah. better. As a very intentional implication on Marissa Kelly's part the mm-hmm. author, because that's, for her, what becoming an adult is like. You lose your potential, you cease to have potential, yeah. and now you are, you are the real. You are the thing you decided to invest time and energy into yeah. doing, right? And there's a sadness to yeah. that that baby dragons are so filled with opportunity, and adult dragons don't need their friends as much, can do much more mm-hmm. on their own, or are much more powerful yeah. on their own, but can do fewer yeah. things. Yeah, right? like that. And that's not directly like, you know, that's not what the game's about necessarily, but it is there and it's part of the game's overall life and cycle.
0: Yeah, no, that's really cool. I think um, it, it is important to look at that stuff and really pay attention to those things, um, you know, which kind of brings me to like, uh, we've talked a lot about the different games that you guys have made and stuff, but like what really got you, What what made you want to get into game design and game development?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's a great question. Um, when I, I have, I, like I said, you know, I played in high school with some yeah. folks and then again, I went off to college and in college there were fewer people going to role play at the yeah. time. They probably, there were more now, if somebody goes to college now, it's probably the most likely time for you to start playing. Yeah. Um, and I played a little shadow run in college, nothing really clicked. And when I moved back home, uh, my brother was really into role playing games. And so I agreed to, to get back in to play with him and spend yeah. time with him. And we ended up going to like a vampire. Okay. Park. It's one of our things, and and so I ended up doing a lot of LARPing and, and getting this opportunity to see that which you know really high embodiments yeah. like you show up as your mm-hmm. character. The rules take not a vaccine, but have a very different role yeah. to play. Um, and as I was running games for that, I kept encountering these spaces where players' experiences and the Werewolf LARP that I was running, Werewolf the Forsaken, which is still like one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite games, players' experiences, what the fiction was telling them they were supposed yeah. to do. And what the mechanics were telling them was supposed to do were out of sync with okay. each other. But then there were other times where the mechanics were informing things in really like special and exciting yeah. ways. Like I'm thinking in Werewolf the Forsaken that spirits mm-hmm. have a bunch of really cool rules around them, like how spirits yeah. function. Which there's like a there's like a physical world and a spirit world and werewolf and the spirit world's a reflection of this world and how you cross over is really cool, and the spirits that live on the other side are really cool, and, like, there's all this stuff that's, like, really Mm -hmm. working, and then there's some stuff that's not working. It's, like, the the players are attempting to do things, and they just don't work at all. Like, the mechanics just don't support them. Um, I'm thinking specifically about things like, you know, when you cast a ritual, and wherever the Forsaken, they'll tell you it takes you, like, you know, 60 turns Mm -hmm. or something. And I'm like, but why would you cast a ritual in the middle of a combat if it takes 60 turns? Combat takes, like, eight turns. So... That doesn't add up, right? Like, what is ha- what's supposed to be? Ha- is this saying you can't do it in combat? Why don't you just say you can't do yeah. it in combat, right? And so, you know, when we started working on some of these problems, at the same time, um, I had a, a friend, Jess Hennig, who actually worked for White Wolf. I didn't really understand that at the time, but I met through yeah. some LARPs. Um, say, you know, hey, you know, I know you, you're looking for some games that connect fiction and mechanics more more solidly. You should check out this game by John Wick called Houses of the Blunted. Okay. And so he sent me a copy of Houses of the Blooded, and I was just blown away. Like, one of the very first things is you have six stats, which are, you know, uh, they're not they're not like strength, uh, you know, dexterity. They're like courage, prowess, mm-hmm. beauty, right? And I was immediately like, that's really cool. Like, we don't have to physically represent your yeah. character. We could narratively represent yeah. your character. But then the thing that, like, punched me right in the nose is when you make a character, you pick one of those stats, and you declare it to your character's weakness. Mm-hmm. They don't just have a zero in that stat. They fail anytime they. Oh, wow. Him. So, Vicini, right, for example, is a character from The Princess mm-hmm. Bride, his weakness is prowess. He cannot yeah. win a fight. If you get in a fight with Vicini, yeah. you win, even if you're sucky at being in a fight, <laughs> right? But Fezic, his cleverness or his cunning is his weakness. He just loses any mental yeah. conflict, right? It's just not going <laughs> to happen, right? And so, it's like this idea that you could choose for your character like a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. I was just like, what? <laughs> Like, God blew my mind. So, so what I did was I started to say, okay, well, let me start to gobble up these indie games with all their cool ideas and bring them into my werewolf LARP and try them and, and, and see how things went, which is ultimately where our company's name came from. Cause I had a friend at the time who said, you're like a gaming magpie, like collecting all the shinies from different awesome. places. And I was like, so when we started our company, I was like, you know, we should call magpie yeah. games because we love yeah. the shinies <laughs> like we love finding cool ideas and bringing them back yeah. to the nest um and so then when uh there was a game jam uh used to be uh pretty i don't know if it's still happening uh called game chef in which it was like it was supposed to be like uh, iron chef and okay. give you some ingredients yeah. and then you like mix them together to make a game and one of the ingredients was shakespeare and i was an english major in college so i was like i can yeah. do this it's a three thousand word draft that's cool and ended up writing a game called the plays the thing in which you played shakespearean actors who were basically arguing about the script with the director. <laughs> so you can say, I know that I, Hamlet, am not supposed to kill the king, but I kinda of think I should just kill him. It doesn't make any sense. Like why don't I just kill him and yeah. be done with it? And so when you win your dice rolls, you get to change the script and then we find out what happens from there. Like the director's like the writer's like furiously changing the script. And I got that from when I went to the Globe Theater and apparently that's what yeah. would happen. Like the actors would like argue with Shakespeare about how the play should go and sometimes he would change it at the last minute and like make additions and subtractions. So that that was a super fun kind of different approach to games it's like rather than be like does my character succeed or fail it's Mm -hmm. does my character convince the author to change the story that I am in and that was a really cool experience that kind of crossed me over from hacking stuff to
0: making my own thing that's awesome yeah so and you know I guess when it came to like starting the company like were you just doing it on the side until you knew it was going to be successful or
1: Is it successful? There are times (laughs) where I'm just like, "What did we do? What did we build? What is this thing?" Right, like all jokes aside, it's amazing to raise a ton of money. But you know, this is not the first time I've been part of something. It's raised a ton of money, and it's it's not always it's not always clear sale. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There is, as the infamous uh, poet Mr. Smalls once said, "With an increase in." And money and funds shall always incur an increase in problems, <laughs> yep. right? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, but I think uh, what we did was my partner and Russ and I wanted to really make comic books. We were like, we love comics, let's make a comic book. And it was so mm-hmm. hard to make a comic book. that We were like, we'll do something easier easier <laughs> yeah, some yeah, yeah. easier <laughs> called making a role-playing yeah. game which at the time we just didn't understand how hard it was so we just threw ourselves into it and so she did all the art for the plays the thing and we took it to kickstarter awesome. we actually flew out to gen con using my figure flyer fire miles i'd never really been to a convention yeah. before so i walked into gen con and saw like seventy thousand white people I'm
0: saying,
1: <laughs> yeah. um, met some really sweet designers including daniel Solis, who is a another designer okay. of color who uh just advised us like you should check out this Kickstarter thing, which we'd never yeah. really heard of. And so we put our project up on Kickstarter, figuring we'd get like our friends and people we knew to back it. Almost none of them yeah. did. Instead, we got $5,000 from yeah. strangers, which right, is yeah, better, honestly. Sure. Like we were like, what? Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> We've won the lottery, $5,000, yeah, yeah. right? Um, fast forward to 2016, where John Wick, who lives in Arizona. So I eventually met him and started working with him. We helped John raise $1.3 million for seven nice. Seas edition. Like I was the person who ran the Kickstarter, Marissa did all the art um, and we worked for John for a couple of years. And then in 2018, I came back to Magpie to work full-time. So I actually did not work full-time for Magpie until that 2018. Oh, wow. I didn't take a salary or anything from Magpie at yeah. that time either. Everything before 2018 was every dollar we made went right back yeah. into the business. Like if it, yeah. if it could. Right. Um, and so, you know, this last three years has really been us building yeah. a business. And with that came an understanding that we had to shift from, let's just make cool stuff like masks and bluebird spray. Let's do whatever we want. We're going to be awesome. We'll just do it to like, we want to have a business, which means we need a business plan and we need projects that are going to be stable. And so that's why we've pursued licenses and we've done things in a particular way that have been built to match the kind of company we want. Right. Like there's no, we still love projects like cartel or velvet glove, which is Sarah doom's new game about teenage, a teenage Mm -hmm. girl gang or any number of other cool projects that we're doing that are, indie and weird and adult and awesome we just don't think you can build a business on them that employs 10 people yeah right so for that we need to make sure that we're thoughtful about what are our big 10-pole summer releases that are going to make sure that magpie is a a sustainable company and then what are the art projects we want to fund and do that we think push the boundaries of what a role is and that's the model we embraced in 2018 that's really i think paid dividends in terms of allowing us to do both to make cool art and have full-time jobs working
0: yeah well for sure and i know like definitely before i even knew it was a magpie game like i've heard of masks and stuff and i think now especially you know for all the bad things that COVID has done for the world um it also really put people right in a place where it's like well i don't have any other thing to do right other than work and and have a hobby (laughs) and so um, and my hobby is pretty much at home so it's like if you're not playing video games like now there's a ton of people who were playing um, TTRPGs at home right who are like well let's play online together let's you know put our games out there let's do streams let's do podcasts etc so all of that's a little bit inundated with it, but it's cool to see like, there's so much content. So if you're out there looking for content, it's like, well, I can find whatever I'm looking for. Really. If I go look hard enough because there's somebody creating it now. Um, But that being said as well, not everybody wants to play D and D, right? That's not the game for everybody or even Pathfinder or whatever. So it's like, let's go find other games Um, or just as you get in community, somebody else is like, Hey, try mass, try this other game. Like, you know, let's play this stuff. And so, it's so cool now to have the ability where when everything's accessible, whether it's a PDF or you go down to your local game store and pick it up, you have the opportunity to to be able to do that and and find a bunch of these indie games that probably were being overlooked in a world where people could just do status quo and not have to worry about it because they were free to do whatever they wanted in the world. <laughs> well, I think there's definitely a thing here where there's a critical mass as well. You know,
1: when we started making indie games in twenty eleven the number of people doing indie games. Like, we were participants on the Story mm-hmm. Games Forum, which is kind of a, an infamous yeah. community, right? And as people moved to Google+, and then eventually moved back, I think, to Twitter and Facebook, and the community, such as it is, kind of fell apart. And it's just it's just yeah. people now around doing stuff. Like, you know, when we launched Avatar The Last Airbender's Kickstarter with a Powered by the Apocalypse Engine mm-hmm. in its core, I think that's a thing we could not have done five yeah. years ago. People would have been like, I don't understand, why yeah. is D20? Or... This should yeah. be 5e right, yeah. or whatever, right? And the number of people who said that's really small, they're like, no, 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 like, I don't want to run around killing things for my Avatar game. I want to have, like, big bending fights and social conversations and cool powers and politics. Yeah. That's the point of, of this yeah. series, right? So, yeah, Powered by the Apocalypse sounds great. I already yeah. know how to play it, right? And that is just like, dude, you don't you don't know how wild yeah. it is for me to be like, I write Powered by the Apocalypse games. and. Ordinary gamers, quote unquote, being like, "Oh, cool, yeah, no, well, I've heard of games like yeah. that's that's normal. It's a normal thing to do. It's not some weird indie thing. That's normal, right? Like because because powered by the apocalypse, impact on the industry has been so huge, and it's opened up a whole new field yeah. of gaming, and it's brought a lot of new people and then older older gamers who have who have gotten on board with this new thing. Like it's a real big thing, and now roughly eighty thousand people are going to get a book in their mailbox that is not a yeah. indie book." right? That they will try out and they will read and they will check out. It that's very, yeah. very, important. yeah,
0: no, that, I mean, that's definitely super exciting and, you know, and such a huge IP. Um, and, you know, I think not only myself, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are curious about it to the extent that you can, um, you know, sure. what advice would you give somebody who is looking at a different IP and wants to go pursue that as a TTRPG? Like, what would you tell them? Um, like I said, to the extent that you can.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I am. That's easy for me to talk about because I, I can't talk about some specifics, obviously, and that's part of what I'll talk so, yeah, about yeah, here. Yeah. But, like, but like getting a license and how you do licensing is its own, definitely its own conversation. So the, the first thing I'll say is uh, there is a reason that Magpie Games did not start doing licenses in 2012. It's yeah. not just because we didn't see ourselves as a licensing company. Mm-hmm. When you're doing a license, you're approaching a licensor as a partner, yeah. meaning that you're coming to them and you're saying, Hey, I know you have the rights to Transformers, Mm -hmm. or Power Rangers, or Avatar, or a board game like Root, and I think I could make you money, right? That's what you're proposing, right? You're not proposing, we can make you a really cool role-playing game that will never make any money, but you will (laughs) think is really cool. That's not really going to work for the most part. For any license you want, it's not going to be a pitch that you want to do, right? Yeah. and what you have to do instead is you have to come to them and you have to say, hey, you know what I think I'm the right person to bring uh, your your IP to a new market yeah that's it. I would like to monetize your content through a new channel yeah and that's some dumb corporate speak right but the idea here is that you know like Avatar as a property has lots of ways to make money mm-hmm. but it has not yet had an RPG yeah and the amount that Viacom CBS knows about RPGs is, is very limited. Most of the time we're explaining to them the basics of how it's supposed to work. Yeah, And so what that means is you need to come and you need to be able to say, I am the right person to do this, which means you have to have a history. You have to have other products. You have to have money in the bank to get things done. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people look at a license like Avatar and think, well, I would do pretty well if I had it. It's like, yeah, you probably would. But what we had to do to get it was spend about 10 years building a company that could prove to Viacom that we would be able to manage it. Yeah. And that's a tough thing to do. So a lot of times, and this is what we did, people approach smaller licenses to start. So we approached Root. uh, Leader Games owns the Root license for Root, uh, the board game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we approached them. And that was like a lot easier conversation because it's just Mark messaging patrick leader on twitter before patrick was so big and didn't have time for people <laughs> and was like hey bro i know you play rpgs like do you want to make an rpg we think we can make you some money and yeah. he was like yeah let's talk and so we talked but that still relied upon him knowing who we were like right. we had to have some games but now yes. yeah we can approach avatar and say hey we did root we raised this much money we know what we're doing we've done licenses before so the biggest thing i would tell people is if you want to be in the licensing game and Good because licensing games is one of the five ways you can make actual money making RPGs. Yeah. Right, number one by making D and D stuff. That is a, <laughs> yeah. a workable way to make money. Right? Yeah. Okay, number two by making something for a big RPG license, like if you own Seventh Sea, Shadowrun. You know, uh, I don't know what else is in that in that category. You know, other big like Cyberpunk. like properties. Yeah. Cyberpunk, right? Uh-huh. If you sure you can make money doing that. Three is you can uh you can own you can get a license, right? So, you know, that's great. The Witcher RPG, I'm sure, did very well for mm-hmm. our right? Or you can have a giant indie hit, like Fate Core or Fiasco or Blaze in the Dark. Yeah. Uh you know how that's very hard. Yeah. Magpie, for the most part, has never had that. Okay. Like Mass has sold very well, mm-hmm. but there's there's an order of magnitude above that that you get to with a really big property. Yeah. Like Fate Core, for example. Or you can grind it out project by project, hoping you don't fail before you get things out the door, which is what Magpie did for years and years. Yeah. So I'm all for people doing more licenses, but I think what you have to realize is you are choosing a path that involves you proving to other people that you can handle their product well. Right. And then – you need to figure out how to approach them. So we have an agent. Her name is Christy Cardenas. She works uh, at the place called the Plains Agency, mm-hmm. and she approaches people for us. I would encourage you to get an agent or get a lawyer if you if you're working at that scale, so that you have somebody to advise you on these contracts. These contracts are this is a really big contract we're working on. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces of it that I probably would not have known about and been able to negotiate for smoothly without Christy's guidance. Yeah. Right? So so we've and we've really benefited from her, her ability to open doors. But all of that is to say you have to approach them with a pitch deck, you have to make your pitch, you have to make your pitch on that individual game, and then you have to go through a negotiations process in which you figure out, okay, what does that contract look like? Mm -hmm. All of that is to say the reason licensed games are usually bad is by the time you go through all of that process, you're exhausted, the deadline's around the corner, and making it good is hard. Yeah. So so like, (laughs) like when you choose licenses is the thing you do, you understand you're taking on an extremely difficult challenge with not enough time and not enough resources Mm -hmm. to make something great that's going to last when at least some part
0: of you knows some portion of people are buying it for the license and not for your game right that's hard is there do you think that there's any value into designing the game for yourself ahead of time and then tweaking that to to fit you know does that make sense? Sure, sure. It's a good question,
1: yeah. I mean, I think, in my opinion, no, because I think that you do a disservice to the license. Okay. So, for example, you know, we, we have talked about a couple of different properties over the last year, mm-hmm. and for each one, we had a variation of PBTA or some other system that we kind of know. We have some ideas. Like we put some effort into that to start to do what we call break the RPG, like figure out the major ideas of it and break it open yeah. and start to make some progress. So, for example, like we talked to Dark Horse about doing Hellboy, mm-hmm. right? Which didn't come to us. It went to Mantis, yeah. and like we had some cool ideas for a Hellboy RPG, yeah. right? That's I'm excited. I would be excited to do that yeah. if it if it ever circled back around, right? Um, but but if we had finished that Hellboy RPG, what would I tie it to? right? Like what would I pot Like what I just released it as its own thing with the Hellboy serial numbers filed off. Like the whole point is that you want to deliver on that license. So Avatar has a lot of ideas that are drawn from masks or, or even cartel or mm-hmm. other places we've worked on but it is, it's its own game, yeah. right? And it has to be to really deliver on Avatar. Mm-hmm. And I think what you'll see is a lot of licensed properties are going to just slap together what they can and push it out. That's not how we do things. and That's not how I encourage anybody else to do things because I think you've got to really deliver on that to really earn fans' excitement, right? I think about something like Mouse Guard. i do not know if you're yeah. familiar with Mouse Guard, but um, you know, Luke did mm-hmm. such an amazing job with Mouse Guard. It feels so much like the comics, right? And so it makes it really easy to talk about when that game came out, like ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Here I am, still talking about Mouse Guard. There's a lot of licensed <laughs> properties that happened in between that I'm not that excited to talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, that's a good point, point. and you know, I, I think too, like you know for the casual gamer um who wants to get into it there is a lot of that aspect I, I don't anymore but I did work recently in the business world for for nearly a decade and there is so much of that of just like I know my skill set right and I need to hire people who have this other skill set and if you don't have a lot of money obviously it becomes more difficult to hire people so like like you said building up that um you know that business background and building up uh your your work that you can prove to somebody to even want to take a chance on you like that's such a huge deal because i mean you know that's your resume for for all intents and purposes so
1: oh and let's let's be completely clear like we put avatar on our list because we were like sure fuck it like put avatar on them. like 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 i guess if we're gonna dream big yeah do right, it right, right like, yeah. like go for it you know i don't want to waste your time christy but like give it a mm-hmm. shot And you know we were talking to people and things were falling off and not happening. And then we um, we get the call that like the Avatar folks want to talk to us. I was literally like, "Are you are you are you sure? (laughs) Did you like you're sure about like you're not fucking like that's real, right? Even the day we signed the contract, I was like, did that just happen, (laughs) right? Like you know like with Root, I was like, cool. We went through the process, did the things like any other business deal, right? But this one, you know, to your point, like it is the dream. It is amazing. It is fantastic. And we felt incredibly lucky yeah. that, that they believed in us that we could do this. Um, and, and that it, it may seem obvious in retrospect, like, oh, you raised $10 million. Of course they believe. Nobody knew that, yeah. right? Nobody believed that, right? So, so like, what happens, I think, with licenses is you are stepping up to the plate to try to earn that, like you said, earn that relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would say the number one thing you can do is just design more games. Yeah. Like, the reason we're able to design the Avatar RPG quickly and well is it's our, like, fifteenth game as a company. Yeah. Right? So so just design, 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 design. Just keep at it. And don't just design small stuff. That's, that's a mistake I see a lot of younger designers making. Is like they're generating small stuff that sells and makes some progress. But like the real money in RPGs, as much as there is real money, mm-hmm. is in books like full books and full systems. Yeah. And the work that it takes to do full books and full systems is different. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to design whole games. Yeah. Sell them, learn from them. And then pursue a license once you have a sense of what what your process looks like, what you care about, what you think you can do long Yeah. Long, right? And that's that's where I would go with it. And we're and just for anybody listening at this point, uh, like if somebody if if somebody wants to reach out to me or to anybody else on the Magpie Games team, we're always happy to talk about you know success. We we often joke within the industry that our greatest enemy is like television, not like each other. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're, if I, if somebody's playing your role playing game, they're much more likely to eventually play mine yeah. than if they're watching TV and not playing games yeah, at all, exactly. right? So, yeah. so our success is almost always linked. The success of D and D is usually good for us. The success of Avatar is usually good for other people. Yeah. It just gets more people playing, games, well, yeah. right? And twenty thousand of the Avatar backers are new to Kickstarter. Yeah, well, I, there's no way this is the only Kickstarter they've. Yeah, make.
0: for sure. And I think you know too. You'd look at Stranger Things and Critical Role, and the timing of those two together making D and D. And you're right; like there are so many new entries into TTRPGs now um, that just weren't playing before because uh, for whatever reason, right? Like you know that's too nerdy for them to go down that path, or or they just were never exposed to it, or didn't really understand what it was, or Satanic Panic, or whatever it is. Like all these other things that go into. You know, how do we get here? Uh, You know, it it just, it's opened up the doors for a lot of stuff and it made it, you know, a big, big, big thing, so.
1: Well, and it's, for us, you know, I know that, you know, Avatar, the Avatar RPG can be intimidating because you look at it and you think like, oh God, how can I compete with that? And and that's how I would feel as a new designer. I would look at that and be like, wow, that's incredible. I could never do that or whatever. And what I would say is that it's sort of like, you know, what we want is to have Avatar be the gateway drug gets people doing all this stuff, right? It it gets them, like you know, they get their kid playing Avatar, and then four years later they're playing, you know, Call of Cthulhu or Shadowrun or whatever weird indie thing we're doing, right? And the more that we can show them that it's not all D &D, and D, that it is actually um, that our industry is beautiful and diverse and different, the more that we can get people to stay, right, and say, I didn't like D and D, but I love Call of Cthulhu or whatever, right, and like find their space, and that just makes our hobby better, right? And so we are very much fans of bringing in new people. Again, like so much of this, if you had told me one fourth of our backers would be new, man, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. That is so, is so wild, yeah. right? Uh, and just every one of those people who sticks around and backs another RPG, we're just, we're just thrilled, yeah, like, thrilled, right? And and so, yeah, like I think our main goal for the next ten years, uh, considering this is like kind of our ten year anniversary this yeah. this this year, right? Like congratulations, we, that, although we weren't full time <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. So ten years, yeah. right? Here we are, cap in ten years. This awesome project is like my next ten years. I really want us to build more spaces where people can participate with games. We have an awesome Discord managed by our community manager where folks talk about game design. We do game design panels. Yeah. Like when we talk about how to make games, uh, you can find that on our website. Um, we have more opportunities than ever to show people games that aren't D&D and are doing different things than D&D. And like over the next 10 years, I'm really hopeful that we introduce a bunch of new ideas to the conversation that give folks space to design and work that didn't exist before. Yeah. And that's our main goal, yeah. right? Just to really you know, take that industry from what you and I knew probably yeah. in like the 80s and 90s as being like almost 100% D&D, and that's yeah, it, right? right, to now this big, beautiful bouquet of weird flowers that lets people do so
0: many different yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I am curious too, you know, because it is such a big venture, and, and obviously, you know, you guys being kind of an indie developer, um, and then an indie developer, you know, that's managed by POCs like you know was that did that play at all like into you know maybe um the fear of going out and trying it or or into um getting the project itself like you know because there are so even in the TTRPG space now like as much as it's growing there's it's still vastly majority white um and I think that there's a lot of uh POCs who benefit from stories of of success of other POCs and seeing like you know, that representation of like, you know, we got here, we can do this. So um, you know, to that end, like how much did that play a role and you know, do you have any advice there for other POCs as well?
1: I mean, we have definitely um yeah, like I said, I grew up in New yeah. Mexico, right? So I didn't really think of myself as brown until <laughs> till, out the yeah, state I was like, pointed Oh, wait a second, hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were not like us, like yeah. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. Especially when I lived in Boston, oh, I was yeah. like, holy shit, Mexican is a is a food aisle? Yeah. Mexican <laughs> is the food aisle? Right, yeah. Um, no, I mean, like, I, I have found that um, the number one obstacle for women and people of color, marginalized folks in general in mm-hmm. this space, is that real opportunities, the opportunity to be a lead designer or get a full-time job or really be taken seriously, they're just kind of always discounted. Yeah. So if you look down the staff of of most tabletop RPG publishers, it's white dudes, maybe white women, Mm -hmm. and they have freelancers who have that stuff, who are are people of color or queer folks or whatever, but those folks just kind of never managed to make it through the door, right? right? They ever get to that second level. It's not saying that for every company this is true. It's definitely not true for some of them, but what we prioritized for minute one from Russ and I was that um, diversity would not end with us that was kind of the motto, right? Like we are going to find and nurture diverse talent across the industry. So something like 90% plus of our staff is from a marginalized community. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, that's probably unheard of in the tabletop part. For the most part, right? Yeah. We have we have a token white dude, right? Like that's, <laughs> we have we have we have reverse. We call him our Paul Walker. Yeah. Like we, like every every group should have one, like one white dude, right? Everybody else yeah. is, is a woman of yeah, color, good. right? And and that's to say that like it's not that we ever said, well, we, we can only have one white. Yeah. Dude. What we said was we're gonna find the people that other people are not hiring because they're they're overlooking their values. looking what they bring to the table and we're going to pay them like we're paying a full-time wage we're not going to treat them as a freelancer Mm -hmm. we're going to train them we're going to build a business with them and that means that when something really big comes along we can't do that, right and so you know we we try to pay good rates and fair rates for work across everything Mm -hmm. we do but one of the things we're really big in is hiring people as employees right and not just treating them as freelancers So what I would say is for women and people of color and queer folks and other marginalized people that are that are listening to this, it's like, look, I'm not going to say you can't go through the existing system, yeah. but I will say that you're looking for an environment that's friendly yeah. to you, that has job openings, that needs your skill set, and is also hiring. Yeah. That's really rare, and what you really might need to do is build your own. Room. Yeah, and that there are so many opportunities now to do that. It's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit and tolerance for risk. But with Kickstarter, with DriveThru, with the tools you have access to, with the design tools you have access to, there is more opportunity than ever for us to build our own yeah. things. And I see that very much as you know, being passionate about mentorship and sharing of resources for marginalized people, being empowered. Yeah. And I've gone a long way away from giving people rounds of applause for having a black superhero on the cover of their book yeah. to asking, who owns it? Who owns the rights, who gets to control the money, right? Because those are the things that I think were required for actual change. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for us as, as women and people of color running this thing, like, yeah, we've had times where it's an obstacle, times where it's really difficult, times where white publishers have treated us and reacted to us in a certain way. I think because of some underlying mm-hmm. biases and, and racism, yeah. um, But ironically, Viacom (laughs) is actually the opposite. They actually love that we're a diverse team. They have a lot of diversity and inclusion programs. And I think you will find there are a lot of licensors right now who are looking at something like Avatar and saying, we cannot give this to seven white Mm -hmm. dudes. Because that's going to be a PR problem down the road. And we need somebody who has a real relationship with Asian and indigenous communities, which we do. Right. And so, so I think if you go out there and you look at a license and you say, I want the, you know, this, this license that I speaks to me and is, and I am passionate about the chances that that license would not prefer you to Mm -hmm. be a diverse community is actually pretty low. Right. So, so I think there's a, this is the time, right. This is the time where we as, as, as marginalized creators seize the reins of power and like, the means of production (laughs) as much as we can and make our own companies and do our own thing and produce our own games. This is it, man. And then we figure out a way to work together to get distribution and that next
0: level stuff. And I think, you know, it is so important to be intentional, Um, you know, into the motherlands is, is uh, that other uh, big um, POC company. And, And that was the thing, you know, talking to B. Dave Walters was just like, yeah, like we, we fully make sure it's not just, Black POCs, but, you know, all POCs and and people of different um, sexual orientations and genders and everything else. So that way we catch that stuff and, and make a game that's not, you know, doing our best to make sure we're not hurting people, even unintentionally, sure. you know what I mean? Because it's so easy to do um, when you have an internal bias and you just skip stuff because you just think like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not my problem. Like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, right. I, I had a discussion with somebody um, who I... I really enjoy and respect and love. And they didn't understand why somebody would use, like put their pronouns next to their name. And so me, like a cishet man had to explain to them, like, this is why it happens. Um, yeah. 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 Thing. And so, it's, yeah, and it's important. And, 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 but it's just like that, it was just, it was ignorance that if I had been somebody who, who could have been more sensitive to that would have been very offended by the way that it came off. Um, you know, and, and so it's so easy for people who are good people to, to just, you know, misjudge, misrepresent, misunderstand a lot of that stuff. So I think it's, it's so good to, um, you know, to have intentionality around that and, and make, you know, do what you can. I mean, obviously, you, you know, these companies are only so big, right. You can only do so much, but in terms of hiring and everything else. But I think it's just, it's good yeah. to know that there's intentionality there. So.
1: Well, like you said, I think that ultimately what we're looking to do is to grow as a community, right? So, you know, the, the, Into the motherland's crew, I think yeah. amazing for just, they're, they're saying like, Hey, we do this stream. We'd like to enter the publishing field. And they're working with people who, you know, it's not just, Hey, we're black and we're going to make a black yeah. game and only black people can work on it. It's they're bringing in people like Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah he's like and he's a one of our contributors on avatar he's a really really cool really smart Mm -hmm. guy who's going to bring a totally different perspective that's awesome for them right and and like for me it's sort of like i see two futures one is one in which we become increasingly divided Mm -hmm. right and you know, there's the there's the white LGBTQ people over there, and the straight cis het male yeah, yeah, of yeah. color over here, and the and the white women over here, and and you know, like we and we all have our little camps, and we support each other kind of a little bit, but mostly we're just lifting up our own mm-hmm. people. Or we can really get in on this thing together and build a lot more bridges and offer a lot more opportunities and be generous to each other. Like yeah. you said, take the time to explain when you get it wrong and build those bridges and have real solidarity. Yeah. And the thing about that is I think white companies are very rarely ever going to model solidarity Mm -hmm. because they don't need it. We're the ones that actually need it, right? And so it means that like Magpie works really hard to mentor new creators and work with new people. And we don't have some litmus test that says, we're only going to work with you if you display these marginalizations. We're looking for people who are doing awesome work that we think will benefit from our expertise and offering them money and, and guidance publishing resources, and hopefully over the next 10 years, I think you're going to see a lot of those people doing cool design work with us. And then my hope is that some of them at least go off and start their own thing and build their own businesses and show us the next generation of businesses that can do the awesome
0: work that hopefully Magpie has done this last 10 years. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. And um, if you have a few more minutes, I do have one kind of uh, bigger question for you. Um, just kind of sure. to break a little yeah. bit back to, towards game design. Um, so I, I've, I've noticed a lot that there are a lot of systems now that use a, um, like Powered by the Apocalypse, right? Or like a D20 system. So is do you think that there is any benefit to creating a new game mechanic system? Oh, that, that is a big question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so like the short version of this, and I can give a whole talk on, on game mechanic systems because you probably know this, but Magpie, we've really prided ourselves on, doing the game theory and game design work that's gonna push forward next generation. Designs, mm-hmm. right? So if you're picking up a copy of Cartel, it's not me taking some old PBTA gear and slapping it into a Mexican narco fiction. It is seven years of work yeah. to build something that is cutting edge and new. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And what we have come to understand is that there is like five or six what we might call design clusters, okay? okay, So just to give you a short example, like there is a Call of Cthulhu investigative horror design cluster. Yeah. And within that cluster, The relationship between the players, the fiction, and the GM is situated in a particular way. So, Mm -hmm. for example, the fiction in an investigative horror game must be at some level fixed before the adventure begins. Yeah. Because if you're discovering it during play, how can you ever solve the mystery? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So that makes that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Good. Cool. Then there is the PBTA cluster, and the PBTA cluster has a different relationship between. GM fiction and, and players, namely that we're all discovering it together. Yeah. Those two things are kind of not workable together. Mm-hmm. Like they, You can't just mash them together and call it a day. What you can do though, is build something that lives like maybe in one cluster, but like toward the other. So Bluebeard's Bride in, in, uh, is a PBTA game. In yeah. which you play a, a bride investigating her husband's haunted mansion. Mm-hmm. And it has yes. some things that are set. For example, uh, the husband is a monster. Mm-hmm. That's just set in the game, but then there's other things. What you find in each room that are not set, yeah. that are open, and so like it's drifted toward this cluster, mm-hmm. toward the Call of Cthulhu cluster, but it still firmly lives in the PBTA game. Okay. Gotcha. Right? And so what that means is that there's no taxonomy of games where I will point to it and be like, seventy-two percent Call of Cthulhu, thirteen percent Power by the Apocalypse, two percent Fate. Mm-hmm. I declare it to be stamp Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. It's instead like, hey, there are these design thrusts and relationships. That if you're not aware of, you should mash things together. We've all seen that. Mm-hmm. I want to mash PBTA and fate together. And you're like, this is just <laughs> a, a peanut butter yeah. sardine <laughs> sandwich <laughs> it's yeah. in here, right? What what this has to do with you choosing a system is we talk a lot about products. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, like there is a game called Cartel, mm-hmm. and then there is a product called the Cartel. Yeah. The game call cartel can be very, very, very good. But if the product doesn't appeal to anybody, doesn't have an audience, does not clearly represent itself, it will not succeed. Yeah. Right? So what I think a lot about with new systems, and we have some stuff that's going to come, I think, in the next year or two that uses newer systems. But say Zombie World, for example. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of Walking Dead game that we made, but it's a card game. Yeah. So it's powered by the apocalypse, but you use cards instead of character sheets. Okay. So the idea is that, like, It comes in one box. Everything you need to play is in the box. You don't need to print anything to play. You can get it out and play it right there at the table. Character creation is fast and easy. So if you die, you make another character in five minutes. And the whole idea here is the product of the game is card-based role-playing. Mm-hmm. The game itself could have been written as just a regular Powered by the Apocalypse game, yeah. but because it uses cards, it almost like it becomes a new system and a new way you're engaging with it. Gotcha. Because the product demanded that engagement. Yeah. So I think that if you look at something like Into the Motherlands, right? I could make a pitch that Into the Motherlands should be a like Cortex Plus game mm-hmm. or a fake game, mm-hmm. just a a point by game where you roll dice to see if you are stronger than the opposition, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of how those games work, including like D and D three point five. Yeah. Same same kind of framework. But I could also see that Into the Motherlands might be a powered by the apocalypse game, in which narrative chaos kind of builds over time. Yeah. So which one is it? Well, maybe neither. Maybe it should be a different style of game completely, mm-hmm. which would require a new system that isn't one of those existing models. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. I think that the answer to your question, very complicatedly, is <laughs> there is absolutely room for new systems. Blades in the Dark proves that. Yeah. Right? It's not a very old game. Like totally kicks ass, does its own thing. Yeah. Um. But my question is always, what's the product? Yeah. Like You're telling me about this investigative horror game that you're going to write a whole new system for. And there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but if you just wrote it for Trail of Cthulhu, you'd have an audience. You'd get to do the thing you were doing. Mm-hmm. And you might find a lot more success. And I point to Harlem Unbound, yeah. where Chris Spivey just decided, I'm just going to write this amazing black experience in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And it, it just slots right into things people know, except it challenges everything about what they know about it. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And I'm the idiot over here writing cartel asking you to learn a new system and play in the Mexican drug war, right? So like which one of us is smarter, <laughs> right? the guy who's engaging existing systems but challenging them or me trying to do my entirely own thing over here? which has its benefits of, I think, being very pure in its (laughs) (laughs) art and very, like, cool. But, like, is that really what I should have done? Or would cartel be better if it had a system or pitch that allowed it to be more accessible? And that's – so, like, my really complicated answer to your question is it depends, but what I want designers to think about is both their design and their product. What are you putting together? And that's why I think you're going to see stuff uh, – I'm part of uh, a group called Smoking Mirror Games that uh, Miguel and Jalas Panosa – is running, he wrote Enough Wall, which is a cool PBTA game about like, Mexican werewolves, yeah. basically. Um, and uh, he is working on a new project with Warriors, who's a streamer, uh, called Exalba, which is a 5E Mesoamerican okay. game. And I'm super excited about it, not because I play 5E, but because I'm like, Do you know what 5E could use? Yeah. A Mesoamerican setting yeah. that's as cool as Raven Loft or Forgotten Realms or all. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, yeah. Does it help to have a new system for that to tell 5E players? Yeah, learn a new system and then you can play with us. Yeah. It feels like Yeah. You know, I think five E players will enjoy playing five E. So let's let them play five E yeah. and make Mesoamerica awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean it's hard to even get five E players to play Pathfinder 2E. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that's another thing. It's like we know that indie people, like when I talk to indie people, I'm like, this game uses vinaigrette resolution and involves eating Cheetos between rounds. Yeah. They're like, done. I've already played weirder shit. But like, yeah, if you're trying to get like for Avatar, we're really lucky that so many people were like, I'll give PBT a try. I've heard of it. I've heard good things about it. Again, could we have done that five years ago?
0: Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so good. And, and, you know, it's nice to see that change. And um you know I'm so happy to see success for you guys and you know one as a fellow New Mexican but two also as a person of color like it's such a big deal um you know and and I think obviously the community's behind it so that's you know it's very awesome and it's gonna hopefully you know allow you guys to continue to make more awesome stuff in other games you know that um like you said that you know some of them will be licensed and some of them won't but just adding to that community, I think it's such a, such a great thing. So I'm I'm excited to see what else Thank comes you, from man. that. That's, yeah. that's
1: really, you don't, it genuinely means a
0: lot to us. I mean, I think one of the challenges of dealing with 80,000 backers
1: is that at some point it becomes this like cacophonous horde yeah. of people who are just like, where's my show tile?" And why haven't you responded? And this and that, not that they're even ungrateful. They're just excited and they're just all yelling. Yeah. Right. And just to hear from somebody that like, you know, Actually, the fact that this little company from New Mexico yeah. has built up to be the number one tabletop RPG Kickstarter of all time is like, we're super proud of it, not just for ourselves, but for the like 25 people that work on this. Yeah. And and like you said, for me, I look at the money we raised and, and everything that we've done and what I see is not, oh man, I'm going to buy like an egg-shaped Ferrari. <laughs> what I see is like, I see 10 years of making really cool games. Yeah. And I see, a, <laughs> I see a stable business that can continue To employ women and people of color, and marginalized people, and LGBTQ people in making games that push boundaries Mm -hmm. and like explode what the mainstream means. I see for us and hopefully for the industry of future that is really bright and really different because of this project. Uh, And of course, that's my job (laughs) to deliver on that. So here we go. In 10 years, you and I can get together to talk about (laughs) how (laughs) to go. Um, But like right now in this moment, what I want to celebrate is like there were a lot of people who told us as people of color to get in line Mm -hmm. and And like your, your turn will come. Yeah. And at Magpie we said, yeah, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to do our own thing and we're going to find our own way. And, and I think that for people of color who have often been told we need to be what twice as good and three times as humble, like it is, (laughs) it is really wonderful to be able to show the community, like it can be done and we want you to do it too.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a good message. And, um, yeah, I mean, this whole conversation really happened because my friend Bernardo, you know, m- knew Marissa or and Sam. And so, like, um, and I don't know to what extent he knew you, but it's just like, yeah, you know, talk to by, and they're doing this thing. And, um, you know, so it's it's so cool. And, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. Like, um, you know, I'm very small podcast, so it's always nice whenever anybody is willing to come talk to me about this stuff. So I really appreciate it oh man i'm so excited to hear that you live in new mexico i was like every every time i meet somebody from new mexico's in
1: games i'm like i'm like how do we not know like there's not that many people here how do we not know so we're gonna have to get together and play some games definitely have you come to the office and stuff and especially once covid is over i'm really excited for magpie to be able to host more events at our new office and things
0: yeah it'll be great definitely man well awesome well we'll end it there and um thank you so much thank you too brother see you soon thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed the show If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you'd like, leave a review to help us grow this thing.